0: Listen to the Drew Marshall show before.
1: George Bush is the Antichrist. Honest to you God. Think, you think, think George Bush so, is yes. the Antichrist? Yes. Okay, so George Bush is the Antichrist because he's a nice guy.
0: He's a nice guy. He's fooling people. He's a trickster.
1: Would you vote for George W. Bush? Absolutely. Why? He's the Antichrist.
0: <laughs> I think the
1: guy needs to read his Bible. <laughs> Would you vote for George W. Bush?
0: Absolutely. I hope he's not the Antichrist because I'm going to vote for the wrong guy.
1: Yeah, I hate when that happens.
0: The Drew Marshall show, right here on Joy 1250. So I got this.
1: You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most-listened-to spiritual talkback program. Ted DiBiase has held many wrestling titles over his expansive career of 20-plus years. He started when he was 10, you know. Including the world championship title. Today, after authoring a book about his life entitled Every Man Has His Price... Ted is now a full-time evangelist and motivational speaker. He was officially ordained into the ministry, and uh, he's speaking to churches and congregations and youth groups and men's meetings and corporate businesses and public schools and universities all over North America. And uh, in addition, Ted is also a spokesperson for and a board member of the Sunshine Foundation, an organization that grants wishes to and tries to meet the needs of terminally ill and handicapped children. He's a good guy, folks. He really is. Unlike the character of the Million Dollar Man, which was fulfilled by wealth, power, and controlled by greed, sounds like some of the other evangelists I know, in contrast, the real Ted DiBiase is fulfilled by his relationship with Jesus and his family, and, uh, and this desire to actually do God's will in his life. MillionDollarMan.com, I spent too long with you, man, three days.
0: Hey, Drew, it's the best three days I've had in a while. So I, <laughs> I actually got out there and found somebody that uh, was real. And I like that. Yeah, it's a rare thing these days, isn't it? Yes, it, is, it is. It very it very much is. You know, I got, I've got a I've got a paragraph here that I've got to read this to you. And, and man, I tell you what, I read this, and it, it pretty much defines how I kind of feel. You know, I'm an evangelist, so it's like I'm one of those guys who blows in, blows up, and then blows out and hands the salve to the pastor and says, you nursed the wounds. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I want you I want you to listen to this. Okay. Traditional religion has set an impossible standard for us to achieve and then bases God's love on that standard. That screws everyone up because inside, even the guys who are preaching it are dying of guilt and fear. Let's face it. People are not robots that can be programmed to be perfect Christians. We're all sinners. We all have shameful moments we don't want people to know about. And whether we transgress those actions or thoughts, Jesus knows full well that none of us are perfect. Indeed, why would we need him if we were?
1: Wow. Well, thank you. that Folks, that's been Ted DiBiase on the Drew Marshall Show. It's been nice chatting with you.
0: <laughs> but uh, That
1: sums it all up, man.
0: It really sums it up. Who said that? Jay Baker. Oh, really? The son of the defrocked and vilified Jim Baker. Wow. Who, by the way, is also... In my estimation, a better preacher now than he ever was.
1: Really, that's cool. You, did you read Jim Baker's book? I was wrong. Yes, I did. What were, what were, what were your initial impressions? What were your lasting uh, impressions?
0: Uh, well, no, I thought, he, I thought he was sincere. I thought that he, I thought he came across as somebody who, you know, and, and, and just to like to sum it up briefly, it would be like, you know, what nobody was preaching the prosperity message more than me. Uh, you know, I was the worst of the worst, and he says I was basing a lot of what I preached on what other men of God. You know, in other words, I was following what other men of God were saying as opposed to seeking god and and you know just if in, in you know a story that he said you know even though he was you know I mean, when he went to prison, he was supposed to have gone to prison for 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 fraud, and in fact it was he was proven later that he had not defrauded anybody uh but he said the best thing that ever happened to him was going to jail because that's where we where he really met God where he really had nothing else to do but get into the word of god and 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 read the word of god and really you know really learn what god has to say through his own personal relationship with him as opposed to Hmm. listening to a bunch of other men who are sinners just like him folks
1: yeah exactly well and me can i just throw myself in there i think i'm i think i'm i think i'm worse than you i really do Uh.
0: Oh, I think
1: so too. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, I've spent man. Three days with you. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you know it. You know the truth. Look, uh, January eighteenth, nineteen fifty-four. The world changed. What oh, happened on that day?
0: I was born, hatched on a rock in Miami,
1: Florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the family scenario that you grew up in, Ted. Mm-hmm. I know very little. All I know is that um, your 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 dad kind of wasn't there at the beginning, your birth dad.
0: Yes. my Okay, my 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 biological dad was a singer. Uh, he was a regular on the old Tennessee Ernie board show. You know, people always tell me, gosh, what a speaking voice you have. You all should be in radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a regular on the old Tennessee Ernie board show. He had a beautiful bass voice. And uh, I can't carry a tune. It had really? Big, it had big handles on it. But my... My dad and my mom divorced when I was two, and uh, my mother then uh, met and married Mike DiBiase uh, when I was just about five. I wasn't quite five years old, and uh, this man came into my life and actually was the father who raised me. Okay. So I was raised by my stepdad.
1: So now, if I understand things right, uh, uh, Mike DiBiase and even your mother were both involved in the wrestling scene?
0: Yes. Yes, uh that's right. You know, people go, Well, well, you know, tell me about your parents. They were both pro wrestlers. Yeah. So you didn't get in much trouble, did you? No, no I didn't.
1: No, no. We were on Jerry Springer <laughs> a my, lot, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> Both of my parents could beat the hell out of me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but your but, your dad actually died in the ring?
0: Yes he did. Uh, and
1: we call him we was, call him your dad, right? I mean for all intents yes. and purposes. That's your yes. dad, right?
0: That's my dad, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, people say, Oh well, he's not really dad, your stepdad. Those are fighting words for me. Yeah. But uh no. My dad was also—he uh, was a national amateur champion. You know, he uh, wrestled at Nebraska. He was a, you know, a very talented athlete. Uh, missed being on the Olympic wrestling team solely due to a knee injury in football. And and so, you know, this guy comes into my life bigger than life, and and not only a great athlete, but a great dad. Um, and I, you know, I speak to kids As a lot. Matter of fact, I spoke to some kids, uh, at-risk kids, yesterday before I left the Toronto area, over in Brampton. Right. And uh, you know, so one of the things that my dad I told these these kids yesterday, I says, you know, like the one thing that was great about my dad and I was I was fortunate to have a role model, was that uh, you know, he didn't force what he did on me. In other words, I played like I played college football with a lot of guys who hated every minute of it. I said, Well why are you playing? Well, you know, my dad always wanted me to be a ball player, so so you're living out your daddy's dream instead of yours. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and it just ruins kids. But my, what my dad always told me was, he says, you know what? He says, all I expect of you is, he says, you got to have your own dream. And he says, whatever that is that you're passionate about, he says, all I expect of you to, to do is be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to achieve that dream. Wow. You know, whatever that is. And so, he says, you know, you know he says, I wrestled, I played football. He says, don't think that you have to do that to please me.
1: But, but how old were you when he died, though, Ted?
0: I was 15.
1: Okay, and tell me, take us back to that day. Okay, where were you when you got the news?
0: I was... Uh, we had just moved into. matter of fact, we had just spent that, that day moving, and uh, they brought word to us at the apartment. Uh, initially, they had come over to get my mother and rush my mother to where he was, which actually was 100 miles away in Lubbock, Texas. We were in Amarillo. And uh, then while they were waiting for her to get ready, they got another call and to tell us that he, he had died. And,
1: uh, so who told you? Do you remember who uh, it was?
0: Oh, yes I do. Uh there was a uh, guy that had he was in the wrestling business, his uh he was like a manager, like my dad's manager, you know, not not really his manager, but in the in the in the uh role playing of mm-hmm. manager. He mm-hmm. was my dad's manager and uh it was his wife and
1: uh You still you must still remember that moment. It must be burned in. Oh yeah. Obviously we're thinking it must have just messed you up.
0: I definitely i mean it's kind of like you know you, you know all of a sudden it's like this person that was uh such a big part of your life and it was just at that time in my life where you know a, a guy and his dad are really getting you know you're becoming buddies yeah and it was like you know have all those questions about uh you know,
1: girls and sex girls and, and
0: sex, and all that other stuff, yeah. and, and, and then all of a sudden he's gone, and uh, what am I going to do, how am I going to fill this void, and what are we going to do, what's going to happen to my family, and all those things rush through your head. And uh, as it happened, we left Texas and went back to southern Arizona, where my mother's parents had moved. Actually, everybody was originally from Nebraska. And uh, we moved into this very small town, a little place called Wilcox. Drew, Wilcox, Arizona, I mean, if you yawned as you were driving by on the interstate and blinked your eyes, you'd have missed it. Gone. Being like, what was that? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, you don't even have to drive through this town anymore. You, you, you remember, you, did you ever see the movie Tombstone?
1: Oh, yeah, heck yeah. Uh,
0: okay, well, Tombstone, Arizona is only about 45 miles from Wilcox. I mean, we're down, we're down in the desert, <sighs> brother. And
1: uh, Okay, uh, but you're 15 at the time?
0: I'm 15, and I moved back into this little town that's got three traffic lights, and I've got these huge dreams, man. I mean, I wanted to go, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to play football. I wanted to be go to the NFL, be a wrestler, and you know, you know. Then I move into this little town, and you know, my dad's dead. And, you know, I got all these kids, so all my new friends, and my peers are all going. You want to be a pro football player? Take a look around you, pal. You'd yeah. be lucky to get to college. Really? You know, and uh, then on top of all that, my mother starts drinking
1: she started drinking as a direct result of losing her love yes i mean that's yes. that's just boils it right down to my husband died he died too early i'm now alone and right. i don't i don't know how to handle this i'm going to hit the bottle right
0: right wow and uh and it was one of those deals you know i come home and i hear her say things like i wish i were dead i have nothing to live for anymore and Because, you know, you're 15, I had an 8-year-old little brother, and it's like, gosh, thanks a lot, Mom. really appreciate that. Yeah. And that was pretty hard, you know. What I did have, Drew, what I I did have and what I tell people, uh, and and I I have to call it a childlike faith um, because I was a kid and and, uh, being raised by a guy named named DiBiase, you know, DiBiase is Italian, and so I was raised in an Italian heritage. Like most Italians my dad was Roman Catholic, so I was raised Catholic. I was like the award winning altar boy. We lived in Omaha where our family home was. And man, you know, I never missed a day. I mean, we went to church every day. Mass. was every day. And if you're an altar boy and it was so it was Monday through Sunday and week in and week out and uh, sometimes there was you know, like there were two masses. It was one at six o'clock in the morning and one at eight, I think, in uh but six o'clock in the morning, two you know, two feet of snow on the ground, you know, twenty below outside. You guys know what that's like up there in uh, Canada, yeah. And uh, you know, there wouldn't be anybody in church but me and the priest. But I never <laughs> missed a day.
1: Why? I mean, Why? What, would, wh- wh- where? Where? Where did that come from?
0: It was it was important to me. I, I you know I uh, you know uh, I, again I'm not a Catholic now, and you know uh, you know there's, I got a lot of problems with Roman Catholicism. But my heart for God was what was sincere and very real and uh, I think that's what carried me yeah I, I know that's what carried me uh, when I was given the opportunity as a teenager to do all those things, you know I mean because I would get things like that from guys like, hey Ted, you know we know you're, we know your dad died, you know your mom's drinking that ain't cool and stuff you know, hey, relax man here, have a beer, smoke a joint you know I mean because what they would do in this little town is they would gather at the lot, you know, everybody go park at the lot, that's the cool place, the gathering place, and everybody get in two or three cars and drive out into the desert, build a big bonfire and have a big drunken party. Hmm. And
1: uh... That's small town I mean, America, man.
0: Yep, sure is, you know, and now it's it's not go out and get drunk, now it's just go out and get high and get all messed up. Hmm. And I mean crystal messed up. Yeah. And uh it's, you know I don't know about Canada, but I know in, in, in America I mean even in the smaller communities it's even it's even worse it's 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 destroying our country
1: all right, so thinking back in this whole sorry I was right in the moment there I was like off in yeah. La La land I was back in small town that whole party scene you're, you know your dad's done he's gone he's out of your life forever you're 15 years old that should not happen to a 15 year old but yet it does your mom's drinking her life away she's no support yeah. do, do you go and move with your grandparents? And what are they like as people?
0: Yeah, you know, my grandfather was a real guy. I mean, he was lucky, like, you know. Uh, he died when I was a senior in high school, so this was make me. I was a sophomore. I was 15. He was like 91 when he died, so he was getting up there. And he, you know, he was so hard of hearing. It's like he all he really did was sit in front of the TV. And, you know, you know, could walk through the house and be at the very at the back of the house, and you could hear the TV, you know, blaring. And uh, my grandfather, my grandmother, though my grandfather' mother was probably And I probably was the the, the patriarch of our family, Uh, the glue that held everybody together, one of the most godly people I ever knew, tough. I mean, she ran a truck stop, you know, a couple of them. (laughs) Sorry,
1: I just got got a visual of Granny off of the Beverly
0: Hillbillies. (laughs) Uh, You know, well, she was tough. I mean, kind of like that. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I was very young, I can still remember she smoked Salem cigarettes. Oh, man. You know, uh, she quit smoking. She got saved, and and, uh, she loved the Lord. And, and I mean, to this day, I mean, people who I meet, or I go back to that little town occasionally, uh, and I I talk to people who will just, you know, brag about me. I'm like, you know, your grandmother really took care of us. Your grandmother was so generous. Your grandmother was so sweet. She really was. Um, But she was really, she was the other thing that helped me from going way off the deep end. But as far as a, a disciplinarian, there wasn't one. Really, I mean, my mother was into the into the bottle. My grandmother—I could have gotten away with murder with my grandmother, and my grandfather was—you know—so old it didn't matter. You know, he just wasn't—you know—there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was. You know, again, I would go out to the cemetery where my dad's buried, and I would cry. I, you know, I'd I'd park the car, shine the lights on my dad's grave. I'd pace back and forth in front of that grave, and I would, you know, I'd pray. You know. I was talking to God. I was talking to my dad. I mean, they couldn't hear me, but you know, that's what you do. I mean, you're sure. you know, you're dealing with grief and everything else, but you know, and so what I tell a lot of people, I said, what I wasn't doing was I wasn't out there reciting the rosary. I wasn't saying the ritualistic prayers of Roman Catholicism. I was crying out to God from my heart, and that's genuine prayer. Hmm. And and my prayer was kind of like, you know, Lord, give me the strength to get through this. Uh, Help me to, you know, give me the, the ability, the agility, and the, the talent to become the athlete I want to become, you know, so Lord, so I can show my mom that it's not, you know, she shouldn't give up on life and quit, and so I can show all my friends and peers that getting drunk and getting high and being cool is not what life is all about. And what I was really praying in a very childlike way was, you know, God, if you'll give me the desires of my heart, I'll honor you with it. And uh, as it turned out, I was the first kid to ever graduate from this little school and southern Arizona, with a full scholarship to play Division One college football.
1: Where would you play ball? Uh,
0: actually, I, initially I signed with the University of Arizona, but I ended up going to West Texas State University, which at that time was uh, a Division One school in the Missouri Valley Conference. We played schools like uh, Louisville, Louisville and uh, Utah State, Tulsa University, uh, Tampa University.
1: Uh, but you, you dropped out, though
0: uh three years three years i played football buddy everything. you
1: were a year away from closing the deal and you and you bail yep why i
0: got oh well, i got to college man and all of a sudden i was real comfortable you know i wasn't scared anymore right i wasn't uh uh all of a sudden i was cool you know all of a sudden it was like uh gee god thanks for getting me here but uh now that i'm here i can handle it and whenever i need you again i'll let you know now, I didn't say that, Drew. I didn't say, that, but that's in fact what my actions said. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden, all those things, you know, that I had done so well, you know, and you know, and you know, it starts real, it real, really starts casually. It's like, you know, like, I, because I never, I didn't drink, do any drugs, any of that stuff, you know. And I said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm 18 years old, and I'm, you know, I've I've proven my discipline, and I've worked real hard, and look at what I've accomplished, you know, and you can almost see Jesus reaching out, tapping you know, on the shoulder and going, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, how about all the nights out there in that cemetery? Yeah. You know, did you forget about that? Yeah. You know, and, and, and in essence, I was forgetting about that. And, you know, pride Ted, reared his ugly head.
1: But, Ted, how can you, how can you? and I'm sure you've been asked this before, because you go around and work with, with the youth and try to tell them to, look, stop drinking and getting high and stay in school. How can you go around telling the kids to stay in school when you bailed?
0: Well, you know, it's kinda of like, you know, learn from my mistakes. You know, you know, and, and it's like I, well I tell my own boy I have three sons. Yeah. I go, look, you know, here here's here's the deal. And I mean I, I was lucky because, you know, uh what happened to me, you know, I, I played three years of college football, I'm a year away from a, from a bachelor's degree in education and the, the summer between my junior and senior year I went to try this thing called professional wrestling to find out if I really was gonna like it or not. And that was a big mistake because I did real well, real fast, and got a little money in my pocket, and said, "Ah, I don't need to go back to school."
1: Again, how do you say this to the young people? Because you said, "Learn from my mistakes," but that that turned out to be such a great move for you, did it not?
0: Well, dropping out of yeah, university. Well, well, you know, it, it did only because I was fortunate enough to to not get hurt. Right. If I had if I had gotten, and I mean, you talk about a high risk job. I mean, I don't. Given that wrestling is is show business and and everything, it's still it, you take a tremendous pounding, just like you do in any other sport. I mean, I'm 53 now; my knees are shot. I got it on my hips going, and guys get hurt all the time. <laughs> one of the
1: one of the saddest sights I ever saw was you and I trying to walk up a set of stairs at CTS.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: look like two I, old codgers going up the steps.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, golly, I'm 53 now. How, you know what's this going to look like in <laughs> 10 more years? You know, by then I'll probably have the the artificial knees. Yeah. But but had I gotten hurt, and I told my boys that, I said if if I had, and, you know, it's like once I got married, I had kids, I had responsibility and debt, and all this other stuff that comes along, I said, what would I have done if I got hurt? What would I have had to fall back on? Nothing. You know, as a matter of, you know, it's like now, well, you know, I'm 53 now. What am I? I'm a, I'm a former wrestler. Well, now what I'm in is, is ministry, and I'm in a, you know, I'm in full-time ministry, and, and I was ordained through the local church. But, you know I you know, again, if I had the degree that i was only a year away from you know even now i could have gone back and and maybe been a teacher and a coach that's not available to me now
1: right right all right folks we're talking to ted dibiase who of course is wrestling's million dollar man june 1975 the spotlight hits you man life took off wasn't it 75 were you got that's your 70
0: 75 is when i started my my active wrestling career 21 years old you know uh just left college and uh that's where it began, and uh, but
1: when did it really? When did it really when, hit? When it
0: really took off was 12 years later. When uh, I mean, I I did real well. Wrestling kind of was evolving too. At that time, wrestling was very territorial or regional. It was popular on a regional basis. There were like what we called territories all over the United States and Canada. You know, like uh, up in up in the Toronto area it was Jack Tunney who promoted most of the wrestling Ma- up in and around that area. Yeah,
1: Maple, Maple Leaf Wrestling.
0: Maple, yep. Maple wrestling and then out on the west coast it would be you know Stu hart stampede wrestling in, in calgary so it was regional territorial in the united states was probably 12 or 13 regional promotions and uh, that's where you learn and cut your teeth and so i started doing well in those and was traveling back and forth to japan but the big break uh when the wwf became so big and in those years when it was going from and wrestling has gone from pretty much you know, it was pretty much a blue collar crowd form of entertainment uh, to mainstream, and uh, you know, I was there in that transition time. You know, uh, WrestleMania three, which was in uh, oh gosh, 1987, early '87, uh, set an indoor attendance record at the Pontiac Silverdome, still standing indoor attendance record, 93,000 people, and wow. I joined uh, on with that company two months later and uh, Vince McMahon uh, called me and said I got this great idea Ted you know this has never been done you know a lot of things in wrestling have been done we've all had all kinds of characters but this is something new and different we think you're the guy that can pull it off and, uh, and I go and i become this guy they call the Million
1: Dollar Man was there something Ted was there something about your personality that matched that character in other words did Vince McMahon see in you an arrogance that he said this is going to do well
0: well what it was is my wrestling character uh because uh, I have I've played both roles. I've been a good guy and a bad guy. In a wrestling terminology, good guys are babyfaces, and, and and the bad guys are heels. And I had, had I had been both. And uh, but as a heel, the character that I projected was that of of being aloof and and, and somewhat arrogant and looking looking down at people. And uh, yeah, well that's what I'm saying. What, what a... I tried to do was I tried to imitate the the, the, the same style and character. of a a heel that my dad had
1: done all right okay but but did vince mcmahon see in you something you know about your natural character who you were off stage or out of the arena and he said you know what this is this is a good match because DiBiases he's he's a bit he's a bit arrogant he's a bit aloof yeah
0: did he see anything like were you
1: were you a jerk then or was it just your character that was a jerk
0: the character was pretty much the jerk okay here's where i was a jerk uh... you know i was always you know i was always uh approachable i mean even wrestling fans, the one thing that I always understood was that uh you know and a lot of guys tried to in the in the old school way you know the other thing that w w f did was he basically brought wrestling out of the closet you know vince mcMahon's the first guy that that said to the world hey look we're sports entertainment you know what you know we're we're we are we are meant to entertain you, but we're 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 we are sport and we're entertainment." Uh, we're not, we're not real, but it's just like going to a movie, but we're live. Right. And basically told the world. And there was a time before that where even though we were smart enough to understand that, it was kind of like magic. You know, magic's not real, but how do they do all those tricks? Mm. But we protected wrestling like that, and we would actually try to live those roles, at least in public. Uh, and some guys would take it to an extreme, but I always was affable with people. I would I would stop and sign autographs forever, and it's like I, it was funny because I, I mean, kids would yell, cuss, flip me off, spit on me.
1: No and way! Things,
0: in in the buildings, and the same kids would come to the hotel. You know, and be back backstage. You know, out in the parking lot, and go, "Hey, man, can I get your autograph?" <laughs> you
1: know. Well, we saw that the other night. We headed out for uh, for some chicken wings, right? And uh, the, the few boys came over. And well, remember that one guy He says, uh, "Excuse me, has anyone ever told you you look just like Ted DiBiase?" <laughs> yeah. And you're yeah. like, you're like, yeah, I've heard that a few times. And then he yeah. goes, "Well, of course, if you were him, you wouldn't admit to it, would you?" He said, "Well, I, I might admit to it." i I thought it was classic you handled them quite well i always i always wonder how these big stars handle the attention the autograph seekers and and it was good to see your heart there that night man well thanks man you're genuine genuine dude now listen um the reverse flying elbow and the reverse elbow off the ropes yeah were those big moves for you uh
0: yeah Yeah, i did a power slam and i did another thing they caught it was kind of like a, a diving punch where i would I can't really describe it to you, but it was like a trademark move. And then you can't my,
1: describe it to me. You did that to me at uh, at the studio, man. You just about killed
0: me. <laughs> no, but I won't tell him what you did. Okay, all to right,
1: that. all right. So changing the topic.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you're going to get me in trouble. It's supposed to be the other way around, man. Um, of all these guys, all right, I'm going to reel off a bunch of names if I can pronounce them right. and uh, And I want you to tell me which one stands out the most and for what reason. You ready? Okay. Dick Murdoch, Greg Valentine, Jim Duggan, Hercules, Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Randy Savage, Jake Roberts, Virgil, Roddy Piper, Big Boss Man, Dusty Rhodes, Brutus Beefcake, 123 Kid, Razor Ramon, and Savio Vega. Oh, wow.
0: Oh, man. Which
1: one of those names just jumped out at you?
0: Well, one that jumps out at me is Dick Murdoch. Dick Murdoch, because he was very influential in my early wrestling career Uh, Dick was one of those guys who he was like a little kid that never wanted to grow up and and in reality never did Uh, he was an extremely talented wrestler it was one of those guys that it came so easy to him it would make you mad Hmm. I mean it was kind of like he could go out and have this dynamite wrestling performance he'd have the people yelling, screaming wanting to kill him Wanting to, 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 you know, uh, you know, because he was a heel most of the time, uh, you know, and when he was when he was a, a babyface, just the opposite, he could endear him, he could de- endear himself to him. But while he's doing all of that, he'd be joking and cutting up and and, and carrying on, you know, and, and having and doing funny stuff in the ring with you. Uh, I, I can't describe it. I mean, but he was he was an influence in my career and somebody who who I, I learned an awful lot from about. The, the, the uh the wrestling industry when I when I was young. Okay. Uh another guy? Yeah. Uh Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk Hogan comes to mind because uh that's the guy I made the most money with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh Virgil. Yeah, Virgil was like, you know, uh, my sidekick, the right hand guy, you know, in, in, in the uh you know, in the the role of the million dollar man, Virgil was the uh the the bodyguard the guy the guy who I put in front of everybody after I ran my mouth and people got up in my face I would sidestep and go Virgil sick
1: him. You know? Well, he's also the guy that uh, that you, you know, he handed out hundred dollar bills to people like Gene Hackman.
0: There you go. <laughs> uh, that was a hoot, man. That was so funny.
1: <laughs> tell yeah. tell the folks the story.
0: Yeah, we were we're at the sports arena in Los Angeles, and I'm on my way. I'm headed for the ring and they said, got a big name celebrity, ringside." I said, who is it? They said, you'll find out when you get there. And so I walked down there and as I stepped in the ring, I'm looking around and I spot Gene Hackman sitting on the front row and with another guy and, his, and, a, and a kid. So I didn't know. I, I guess as it turned out that, that Gene Hackman and the guy were really good friends and the little boy was the, the, the friend's kid. Anyway, so they introduced me. and Actually, I was wrestling Hacksaw Jim Duggan, so they introduced Duggan and everything. We were about to start the match and I go, hold everything i just stopped the whole deal and so you know obviously because i know that the spotlight's going to follow me so i get out of the ring and i walk over and i you know virgil of course always is where, right where i'm at and i would snap my fingers and you know virgil knew he'd, he'd pop a crisp hundred dollar bell pow and so he pops the bill and i take it and i roll it up on my finger and i stuff it in gene hackman's shirt pocket and i go mr hackman have a drink on the Million Dollar Man, you know. And I mean, he just popped. He loved it. So then, then, then we we uh, you know we break for intermission right before the main event and. He comes back to say hello and meet everybody. And he takes on her bill and he starts to give it back to me. He says, You know, he says, That was great, man. I really loved it. And I said, No, man. I said, Keep it. He said, Are you serious? I said, Yeah, man. It's not my money. <laughs> 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 it's the company money, and that's what they give it to me for. Oh,
1: man. That is classic.
0: <laughs> so Classic.
1: A lot of fun. Uh, okay. Just a couple more names, and we'll get on to the rest of your story, folks. We're talking to Ted DiBiase, of course, who's wrestling's million dollar man. When I say these names, I want you to just say, you know, the the, the first thing that comes to your mind, you're right? First thing comes to your mind. You ready? Yeah. Macho Man. Randy Savage. Oh,
0: uh, uh, weird. <laughs> 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 Ooh, yeah. Snap into a slim gym. Dig it. You know?
1: Got it. Okay. Andre the Giant.
0: Uh, gentle Giant. Wonderful guy.
1: Roddy Piper.
0: Uh, <laughs> another wild man, but with a really big heart.
1: The people loved him.
0: Yeah. Didn't they? Still do. Yeah. You know what? We need to be you know, we need to pray for Roddy because I just found out that Roddy has cancer. Oh man. Yeah.
1: Oh that's not good. Yeah. That's not good yeah. at all.
0: And I mean I just found out, I mean like within the last week.
1: Really? Yeah. All right, folks. Well there's there's a little uh, little word for you. Yeah. Uh Greg Valentine. I mean when I hear the word Valentine was there not the Valentine brothers? Was uh well, there... no, his
0: dad. His dad, Johnny Valentine. Okay. But when I think of Greg Valentine, I think of Turtle turtle oh yeah <laughs> we all call greg turtle because he moves so slow oh because of that oh i thought you, meant oh, he, yeah. you know yeah, in hockey
1: like- in, in in hockey when the guy uh, turtles right he kind of he, he protects himself because he knows he's he's whooped right but he didn't do that he's just a slow mover no. was he
0: no he's just a slow mover slow uh slow moving guy but but uh, great guy went to india with him
1: right uh can a christian be a pro wrestler can a Christian be in the WWE or whatever they are these days? You know, can a can a, can a genuine Christian do both things?
0: I think so. I think so, and I think I think there would be a lot of religious people out there uh, that would that would argue with me.
1: Yeah, but, they, they'd uh, flip their nut over that one.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, cause,
1: G- give me know, an ex- give me an example of someone that, that's pulling it off.
0: Uh, Sean Michaels. Okay. Sean Michaels uh and and i you know and i, I won't go into any in the, into any specifics, but i know that there there have been a few things just in recent history you know on t v with the w w e uh that that uh that were being done that re- revolved around him and uh his tag team partner and again that you know he was not comfortable with and and basically he you know without again going into any detail. Basically, said look, he says, you know, if we can't back off on this, then I can't do this anymore, and so they backed off on it. So he's trying to take a stand wherever he can.
1: Is it hard to take a stand? I mean, we're talking about the Vince McMahon era. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, you know, it's like you know, it's like anything else. I mean, um, you know, if you look, you know, true. If you look at anything on television today, you know, it's like you know, uh, I always say, you know, television today is a reflection of our culture, and it's not pretty you know a lot of things on tv are are ratings ratings driven and it's kind of like uh kind of like if i were to give advice to anybody today you know it's like the million dollar man was a character in the wwe i was a villain and as long as that villain you know as long as i portrayed that villain properly in other words as long as in the end when it came to the big blow off match i got my butt kicked and you know i'm the guy that got chased out the door as long as, I'm tell, as, long as, I'm, as long as I'm telling the moral story correctly, then I'm okay with it. I mean, because I was still a million-dollar man when I was starting to go out and, and share my testimony in churches. And I even had people ask me that. I said, how could you be that guy on TV, you know, and, and, uh, and then stand up in church and say what you're saying? I said, well, that's like asking the guy that plays Satan in the church play how he could do it. <laughs> I mean, It's a show. It's an act. You know, I'm playing a villain. Do, do you, you know, get to, when, do, when you start glorifying that role, yeah. then you got a problem. Do
1: you get tired of the is it fake question?
0: Oh, I'm just used to it now. Uh, actually, I'm actually surprised by it now. Now that, you know, again, that wrestling's out of the closet, it's, it's sports entertainment, you know, the fact that people still ask is what's amazing. What do you mean, is it real? Of course it's not real. <laughs> That's I've had some people get up and walk out on me that just are diehard believers.
1: Really? He's lying
0: he's lying it's real, <laughs>
1: but i mean we're not not to put down or belittle the the athleticism that comes with this right i mean yeah. you 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 were uh who was it that stuck up for you stuck up there's a good word stuck i don't think I've ever used that word before <laughs> who was it that that stood up for you uh you were filming some movie and and was it was it Stallone
0: Stallone the one movie the one time that Ted DiBiase got to flash across the screen this movie uh the first Rocky movie that Stallone did right after that, uh, the second movie he ever did, and I think it's still a movie that he wrote it, it was called Paradise Alley, and it was about wrestling, and it was like, there used to be what they called club wrestling, where, like, in, in bars, they would have a ring set up, and they'd have, like, the local champion, and you, you know, for so much money, you could challenge the champion, and as long as the champion kept winning, you know, uh, he kept, you know, he kept his spot, and he made the money. And the story was about these guys from Hell's Kitchen in New York, the ghetto, who saw an opportunity to, to get money and get out of the ghetto when they realized that one of their brothers uh, could could do the, the do the deal. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, in the process of us doing this movie, uh, there was this montage scene where it jumps from when this guy first has a match, and this this scene where it shows him going in the battle with one guy after another very quickly, and I was one of those guys. That's what I mean. I flashed across the screen. But in the process of shooting this movie, there were a lot of the extras on the set that started poking fun at pro wrestling. And Stallone stood up one day and he says, I don't want to hear one more crack out of anybody about pro wrestling. He said, what we're doing in three days with these wrestlers, it would take two or three weeks to do with just regular stuntmen. He says, these guys are the best improv actors in the world. And I just kind of bowed my chest up there. Yeah, you tell him. Yeah,
1: lie. yeah, bring it, big yeah. guy. That's cool. Yeah. He's he was a short guy though, wasn't he? Ray? Wasn't he oh, real yeah. short?
0: Yeah, he is. He's a short guy.
1: Hey, What about the blood though? Hey, I, I, where does it? Where does that come from? Is it little blood pockets here uh, and there? Everybody, and yeah, g-
0: everybody, everybody thinks you know, they say, oh, it's chicken blood, it's ketchup, it's 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 blood capsules, it's real. And, uh, the really, the, you know, you know, wrestlers aren't real smart. Well, how do you do Well, what do you mean it's real? Do you really just sit there and get punched or whatever? Actually, in the old days, they're, they they did do that. It was called doing a hard way. Okay. And, uh, but, uh, in more modern times, we use a little razor blade. And we actually cut ourselves.
1: You cut your own face. Well, because I think the forehead area, especially around the eye, that bleeds pretty good, doesn't yeah. it?
0: And so that's what you do you know you get you get whacked you hit the chair you hit the you hit the ring post uh, the chair hits you sometimes the chair hits you and it's a good shot and you don't need the blade <laughs> <laughs> now while
1: well, speaking of that are there are there guys who are known in the ring as being guys that just that just don't pull up on that shot you know they're supposed to protect you with the, with their wrestling moves uh, but they just for some reason either they're not good wrestlers and they end up hurting people or they're just cheap jerks
0: well well, well there have been a few guys that have been known to be what we call stiff, in other words, you know they're just you know hey, you know you're going to be working with so and so you know he's he's real snug you know and again, wrestling terminology uh there were those times there's always those times you can't be in a business like that and not getting get not getting nailed occasionally yeah. I mean really you know take a shot, and uh, when that happens, it's called a potato. A potato. You know, you get you get a spud. And anytime time you get a spud, whoever throws that spud needs to expect a receipt.
1: Yeah, I, I I get that. You don't even have to explain that, puppy. I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I, I remember in a schoolyard, I told you this, I remember sitting in a schoolyard, and a guy, I, th- I thought his name was Ken, but I can't remember anyway, he sat on my back in grade seven in the wintertime <laughs> and pulled my chin up with both his hands clasped together and yeah. gave me the camel clutch.
0: That, yeah, that's what that is.
1: I did not enjoy that.
0: No, no. I had a guy do that to me. I think I might have told you the story. Uh, The the match I had uh, was supposed to be this deal. The wrestler's name was Mister Pogo. He was a Japanese guy, and his big deal at the time—this is back when my career first started. His his thing was the karate thrust, and it was supposed to be illegal. And he would cheat, you know, and do it behind the referee's back, and you know, hit you in the throat. and, And so we have this match, and I wear a dog collar around my neck, so with spikes coming out of it so he can't hit me with a karate thr- thrust right well in the process of the match you know he pokes me the eye, hits me in the head or something and down i go and the same position I'm, I'm laying on my stomach he sits in the middle of my back and what he does is he grabs the collar you know up underneath you know and he's supposed to be working it you know You know, like, it's supposed to look like he's choking me, but he is, in fact, choking me, and he choked me out. No. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember I was looking at the crowd. It's like if you've ever, if it's ever happened to you, I can tell you exactly. It looks like the curtains are closing. It's like, you know, the black comes in from both sides, and it just slams shut right in the middle. And then it opens back up the same way, and I was looking at the people. I could see them. I could see their mouths moving, but I couldn't hear them. And then very slowly, the sound came back into my ear. (laughs) oh man yeah you and i
1: have lived totally different lives dude i tell you what um who's the coolest person you've met being being the million dollar man i mean we we heard the gene hackman story i mean you you obviously get to meet some celebrities along the way
0: oh who have i met you know aaron neville
1: hey he's a big dude man
0: yeah yeah and, of course, he made me feel really old. He said, hey, man, I used to come down and watch you wrestle <laughs> in New Orleans when I was a young guy. You know, wait a minute, man. We've got to be about the same age, right? You know, <laughs> nice. his brother, you know, used to come down to New Orleans, to the,
1: Aaron, where
0: they're from, to watch us. And
1: uh, Aaron was a guest on our show a few months ago. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah,
0: real, real, real great guy. Uh, <laughs> Robin Leach.
1: <laughs> oh, no way. I thought he was a flash in the pan. Is he still around?
0: He's, well, I he's still around. Long stars I, I, of the rich
1: and famous. Boy, yes, Robin I was, Leach.
0: I was on the show.
1: Oh, oh, that's right. Million Dollar Man. Hello.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't my house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what was really funny, too, Drew. It's like I said, hey, Robin, you know, this is, this is not my house. This is Vince's house. This is my boss's house. He says, don't worry about it, Ted. We do this all the time.
1: Oh, no way.
0: Yeah, I said, so all those houses I see and all those, nah, we don't, we don't. So I guess it was one of those deals where it took you know not wrestling's not the only thing fake on television.
1: Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, Robin Leach uh, and Benny Hinn, huh? Oh
0: please, let's not go there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about your failings because I think as guys, yeah. it's important for us to own our own failings. Absolutely, and I've I've heard a bit of this over the last few days while we were filming the show with uh, Glenn Allen. It's going to be on CTS. Uh, I think Saturday. No, sorry, Sunday nights at around six thirty. I think. Uh, anyway, in the evening sometime, uh, a great panel of guests. Ted was on. I was on. Glenn, of course, is hosting the show. We had Mark Osborne, Kent Austin. I mean, the the list was endless. But but in in hearing some of your journey, what I really appreciated from you, Ted, was the fact that you said you owned the fact that you were a jerk. As a husband, yes,
0: absolutely, uh and I tell you you know until you face up to it, you know you got you got own up to it uh you know and as as a minister, as an evangelist, I really you know I mean evangelism is my calling, but specifically, I think my niche is guys, uh, simply because most guys you know uh can identify with just about everything that I went through uh you know they deal with and they struggle with you know whether it's with with fame or recognition. Or you know, uh, just the whole ego trip. You know, pride and arrogance and ego. You know, you know, competing with the Joneses. You know, the job. You know, you know, what what do you drive? Well, I drive this. You know, uh, what kind of clothes do you wear? All that stuff, the recognition and uh, and everything. Uh, what's really important in life um, and women and uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, there's all kinds of demons out there and all kinds of addictions and uh i did my share of drinking and and uh you know i you know at one time i thought i was snorting up peru uh but uh by the grace of god i wasn't addicted to either one of those things but the addiction in my life was was women uh was lust of the flesh uh my first marriage ended after after six years
1: how old how old were you
0: I was I was 20 when I got married the first time and, and quite frankly stupid. I, I didn't had I had no idea what commitment was. I had no idea what love was. You know, love always seeks to serve the object of your affection. Lust always seeks to serve self at the expense of everybody. And I was a 20 year old jock in college playing football. I was raging hormones. I was just a horny jock. You know, simply put. Yep. Uh, and my marriage was doomed to fail from day one because number one it wasn't grounded in, in God or a relationship with Christ. Six years later, I was divorced uh, and, you know uh, unfaithful in my first marriage uh, as well and uh, then I met melanie and uh, when I met Melanie, I met a Christian girl and I, I don't believe this is where this is where the uh the uh the journey with me and God really began or I guess the journey back from my childlike faith uh I didn't want to make another mistake didn't want to uh to have another child i was a, there's a son that came out of my first marriage and I didn't want to have another son that I couldn't see except on special occasions and and uh you know Christmas and birthday and that stuff mm. um, and so uh melanie and I began to uh, began to attend, to attend church together. And, of course, I had been raised Roman Catholic, and Melanie had been, uh, I think, raised Southern Baptist. And so we decided to go to a non-denominational church together. But it's the first time I heard the gospel preached out of the Bible. It's the first time I heard that I must have this relationship with Christ and not all this other ritual stuff. And it was the first time I answered an invitation. And I, I ended up drew answering invitations three times in my life first two times, you know, I didn't really take, because nothing in my life really changed. You know, I, you know anybody can go up there and cry a few tears and admit you're a sinner. That doesn't mean you got saved.
1: Yeah, emotional Christianity.
0: A- absolutely, and I preach about it all the time. There's a whole bunch of people going to church today that aren't saved. They're just walking through religious ritual. Yeah. And I was one of them, man. I was right up there with them. And, uh, uh, you know, and so I what I, I tell the guys all the time, I said, you know, I think God... God looked at me and said, you know what, Dad, I'm going to give you everything you think you want. Go become that big star in wrestling and, you know, get a bigger house and a nice car and all those all those things. And I got all those things. And, you know, I, I became uh, a bigger star in wrestling than I ever imagined could, could happen. You know, I mean, you know, being on, you know, uh, you know, to the Tonight Show and Arsenio Hall and, and Lifestyles of Rich. I never thought, I dreamed any of that stuff would happen, having action figures made in my likeness and all that stuff. And and with all of that, now, you know, I've got this fame in wrestling. I've got, I'm making more money than I thought I'd ever make, uh, you know, and, and uh, I've got all the stuff, and I've got a wonderful wife, and then on top of that, two more kids, uh, beautiful kids. I get my son back. My my oldest son, Michael, came back to live with me at the age of 13, so I was blessed in so many ways. But man, I said, you know what, with all of that, you know, there's something still missing. I mean obviously there was something missing because I kept trying to fill that emptiness with all the other stuff and that's what everybody else does and it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol or women I mean it could be it could be your gambling addiction it could be your golf match it could be it could be any one of a number of things but any anything anything that takes precedence over you in a relationship with God is an idol
1: yeah we medicate with everything
0: everything and that's a good word medicate we medicate with everything and for me, it ended up being the women. And, uh, you know, God gave me enough rope that, until I hung myself. And and I called home one day. And it was actually the day after WrestleMania 8, March of '92. And my wife confronted me with the infidelity. And, uh,
1: How did she know? how did she find out? Uh, I mean, she he, must have known for a little bit. But, but finally, you know,
0: it... I, I think, you know, well, I, what I think happened was, well, what I think happened. You know, I got, I got careless. I mean, I was like, you know, uh, you know, phone bills, credit card statements, yeah. things like that. Yeah. She just became suspicious and she started looking into a couple of things. And then it was like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I confessed to an affair. It was multiple affairs. It was, you know, it was like, you know, gosh, how long has this been going on? Right. And, uh, uh, and here's the amazing thing. When I, when I was, when I realized that I was caught. When I realized that I had hurt the person that I loved the most, the reality of it was immediate. In other words, it's kind of like we walk around in that veiled disbelief and we rationalize everything like, well, as long as my wife doesn't know, and you know I'm out here working hard and I'm lonely, and you, you can you can make yourself believe anything you know you can make yourself believe the lie. But as soon as I realized that, you know, the first words out of my mouth were like, oh, my God, you know, what have I done?
1: Were these affairs or flings? Like, were you emotionally involved or, or physically involved or, or the whole deal?
0: Okay. Uh, most of it was flings right but a couple of them were 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 I uh, was more
1: emotionally cuz cuz they say the women have a harder time with the with the emotional involvement than just right. the fl- no look they have a hard time with both of them let's not kid ourselves that, you right. know we, but there is right. something where it's more of a betrayal if you emotionally allow yourself to connect with another woman right, right. A- and and this goes the other way too in in office relationships and this whole well you know especially christians will say this well we we didn't actually have sex you know, so it's okay. It's just an emotional uh, thing. Well, that that's even well, worse.
0: That's adultery too. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah. If you're if you're looking for if you are looking for that for that approval, if you're looking for that that uh, whatever that that need, if you're seeking that the, the that need being filled with anybody other than your wife, you're committing adultery. Absolutely. I, I,
1: how did your wife process this? I, you know, you would have been. She, I can't believe she didn't kick you out.
0: My first you know, defense mechanism was, I don't want to talk about it on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. Her response was, No, you don't. Cause you don't live here anymore.
1: Click. Right. Oh, so you, you were, know, you were, you did get the boot.
0: You know, I did get the boot, and uh, I called a pastor who's my dearest friend today. And that's amazing. And he 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 uh, and he let me know too. He said, Ted, he says, you know, when you called me, he said you were crying out to God. and, and here's the amazing thing about this guy. Now I had a pastor at home at the time, and he's not the guy I called. And not that I didn't like him, respect him, and and have a great relationship with him today. But I called this guy, Hal Santos. This guy prayed for me, Drew, for eleven and a half years. This guy I met in the gym shortly after I married Melanie, and he prayed for me. He would call me periodically. He was just a friend. He was just a friend, and I had shared my weakness with him. He knew that. And, you know, he made himself available to me. Of course, he would call me a lot of times and I wouldn't call him back. And, of course, he knew when I didn't call him back that I wasn't calling him back because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be accountable to him. Hmm. And, uh, so his prayer was, God, you know, whenever the tree falls, let me be there. So when I called Hal, I was calling Hal because I knew that I was calling somebody that loved me unconditionally. Again, somebody that showed me the compassion of Christ. Uh, and I knew that no matter what I told him, He'd still love me. And, and so I fessed up to him. I said, here's what's happened. Here's what I've done. And, and uh, he called Melanie. And, and then Melanie then turned called him back and, and had more ammunition for him. And he called me back and he said, "Dad, Melanie says she's found out this, 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 and this. And I said, it's all true. He said, well, he says, showdown's at my house. Get on a plane, fly to St. Louis, I'll pick you up at the airport. He picked me at the airport. My wife was there already, was waiting at his home took the longest 30-minute ride of my life to go face the music. Mm. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Ted, what I'm going to tell you is no guarantee of saving your marriage, but it'll change your life forever. He said, Jesus said the truth would, would, would set you free. He didn't say it would be easy, and he didn't say that it didn't come with a price. He said, you're going to reap what you sow. So he said, what I'm telling you is, even though I'm telling you to tell the truth and that Jesus said it would set you free, You know, it could be that the price you pay for what you've done is your marriage. Uh, It could cost you everything. Hmm. But it will give you a freedom and a peace in your life that you haven't had since you were 15 15 years old when your dad died and your mom started drinking. If you'll put the same trust, that childlike faith in Christ today that you had back then, he said it'll change you forever. He says what's at stake here is your soul. Cause that's the biggest thing is 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 your eternity and and drew, I just knew he i just knew I just knew that he was right, and of course all my buddies of course, you know you know how guys are oh gosh, don't tell the truth, <laughs> yes. you know you know they don't want to know the truth, you know you know she might forgive you, but she's never going to forget, and she's going to throw it up in your face for the rest of your life.
1: Speaking of facing it, Ted, uh, right now, just because of the law of averages, there is somebody listening who's in an affair right now. Yep. And let's let's talk to the guy, the guy who's been fooling around with his wife. Let's talk to him right now. What do you say to him? But I, but I really love this person, and I, you know, my, there's nothing with my wife, and it's, it's dry and stale, and she doesn't give me the affection that I need, and I'm just really connected with this person. This is my soulmate, you know. No, you think God, God will understand this?
0: That's a bunch of garbage. You, you made a, you made a covenant. You entered into a covenant relationship, and, and before witnesses and before God, and you said at the altar that you would commit yourself to this person through sickness and health. Do good and bad to death do you part. You know, what we got in America and maybe in Canada, too, is we got a bunch of wimps today who don't know. Because real men, and, and I, I learned this the hard way, I didn't start becoming a man until I was 38 years old. And I had everything I thought uh, a man could, could want and have. And real men are men of character and integrity. They're men of their word. And their word is their bond. And they keep their word. And quite frankly, you're only as good as your word. And if your word's no good, then you're worthless. And that's who Ted was. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, pal. If you're listening out there, if that's you, that's you, buddy. You know, if the shoe fits, you got to wear it. The bottom line is there might be a lot of problems, and, and there might be. You, know, you could say you can you can doctor it up any way you want to, but the bottom line is you got to be man enough to go sit down with your wife and say, you know, we, we got to let's work through these problems. You know, let's 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 get this all out in the open. Because the longer you keep sweeping it under the rug, it's just a festering wound that's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then when it finally explodes, you know, it's going to be really
1: bad. Ted, you and I could rattle on forever. We're running out of time. Yep. I, and I want to yep. get these uh, li- this last thing in here, okay? Sure. Where the rubber hits the road. You told me and all of us that your particular issue was women. Right. Right? You weren't a big coke head. I'm sure there was a bit of drugs. I'm sure there was a bit of booze. A yeah. lot, lot of booze, but your big deal was the women, right? Right. Okay. Now you're doing the, the evangelist thing. You know, you're traveling around. You're staying in hotel rooms here and there. You know, you and I stayed together in the Holiday Inn down in Burlington. Right. Uh, we weren't together. Not you know. Let's just clear that <laughs> up. <laughs> but uh, what I, you know where I'm going with this, right? How how are we going to? I don't want to read in the paper that ev- evangelist Ted DiBiase, right. You know, was uh, was has just owned up to to all these extramarital affairs again now, what, kind of what do you what do you do, well that's what I'm saying what what do you what have you put in your life if you're going to travel around and stay in hotel rooms and do all this kind of stuff what have you put in your life to make sure you don't get ensnared by what you already know is a nasty trap that you are you easily walk into
0: right well the first thing is uh, is that I don't become naive enough to think that Although I've given my life and my heart to God, and that I'm devoted to God, and I've become a, a minister, and I've experienced this tremendous forgiveness, which, by the way, the other remarkable thing about is that that God restored everything to me. That that my wife is, in fact, still with me. That we are happier, a happier couple, more intimate today, and, and closer friends today than we ever were before. And that's something only God can do. And that nobody, nobody. Nobody in my life, including Pastor Hal, has has demonstrated to me the love, compassion, and mercy of Jesus Christ more than my own wife. And why? Because of her devotion to God and her relationship with Jesus Christ and her willingness to look at me and say, You know what, Ted? I've got to make up my mind. Are you really sorry or just sorry you got caught? Yeah, yeah. And when she determined that I really wanted to, to, that I meant what I said, that I, that I wanted the chance to become a man of character and integrity. She said, I'm not sure I'm strong enough, but I know that my God is a God of, of restoration and not divorce. And because I love Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity. She says, I think you're a bonehead, and I'm not sure you're big enough to do it, and she challenged me. And, and, and by the grace of God, I met the challenge, and we're happy today. But to answer your question, Drew, you know, I'm not stupid enough to believe that I can't still be tempted. And so I've built accountability in life. Number one, and I tell guys and, and girls this, if, if, the, if the Word of God doesn't have lordship in your life, then Jesus Christ isn't Lord of your life. If you're not picking up the Word of God, if, you, if it's not a daily part of your life, if you're not nurturing that relationship, that's, just, that's where my strength comes from. My strength comes from my daily walk with Him. And I can't have a relationship with somebody that I'm not allowing to talk to me through my prayer life, you know, and through the Word of God, and me, and me talk to Him through my prayer life. That's number one. Uh, number two, accountability. You know, there's, there's, there's three or four guys that I'm accountable to 24-7. They can call me any time of night or day. Pastor is one of them. And, and then there's just the checklist that I make. For example, you said, you mentioned the hotels. When I check into a hotel, the first thing I tell them at the front desk is, if you have in-room movies, take the adult movies off my television. That way, there's no, you know, I would have to call them back and say, "Hey, put them adult movies back on my TV," you know,
1: because <laughs> I'm a big pervert,
0: you know, because yeah. I'm a big pervert. You're not, you know, you're not going to do that. So I build those, <laughs> I build those, those that that checklist in, in, into my daily life, and then. And then I'm accountable to Hal. I mean, and and Hal has called me. He'll, he'll call me at 6 o'clock in the morning. Hey, Ted, what are you doing? Well, I'll sleeping until you call me, jerk. <laughs> <Kirk. laughs> you know, he says, you're not watching them nasty movies on your TV? Uh, no, Hal, I'm not, you know. I well, thought I'm, about I'm, it, but I didn't go there.
1: You know, that hotel that we stayed at, I, I, did, I went to the guy behind the desk. I said, hey, can you do me a favor and take off the access to the porn stuff? Said, yeah. And he said, sure, yeah. I said, I, look, I just don't want to be tempted with that. And I walked away. But as I walked away, I caught his face. He was surprised.
0: Yeah, the world is surprised.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, man, you are one genuine cat. I thoroughly have enjoyed my time with you this week, uh, the the conversation today to let our listeners in on who this Theodore Marvin DiBiase is. Oh,
0: gosh, you told (laughs) him.
1: Theodore, Theodore, I I can't think of two geekier names, geekier names
0: (laughs) than Theodore
1: and Marvin
0: Oh yeah. What okay. a geek. Thanks a lot. No I'm problem. gonna have to go get, I'm gonna have to get some junk on you now. <laughs> <Yeah>. But
1: listen <laughs> Which man. Probably
0: won't be very hard. Oh no, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell
1: you You just ask and I'll tell you yeah. But But no, you're uh, the real I had deal. I'm a
0: great time this week too, Drew. actually I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, I'm talking to, uh, to, to glenn and you know glenn talked like well you know he says we're going to come back in the spring and do it again so oh, I, no. That'd be cool. oh no oh <laughs> no oh
1: yeah <laughs> folks uh, we've just been speaking with the million dollar man ted dibiase and if you're looking for a genuine authentic communicator to come and speak to your group or your church or your what i don't know whatever your your high school i can think of no one better than ted dibiase the million dollar man ted as we head out What's your signature call, buddy? i got to hear it one more time. I've been practicing this all week. You ready? You ready? Yeah. been practicing yeah. this. You ready?
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> Is that pretty good? Not,
0: not bad for a rookie. <laughs> Everybody's got a price <laughs> for the million-dollar man.
1: Beautiful. Hey, Ted, yeah. hang on tight. I'll put you on hold, and oh, no, I'll be right with you, okay? Hang on. Okay. Hang on. Ted DiBiase, million-dollar man. Got to go to his website pretty easy to find million we'll come back with a guy who wrote a book called plastic jesus and then we're going to ask you a question christian trinkets are you kidding me they're everywhere talking jesus dolls and jesus bracelets and sandals that leave the imprint of jesus loves you in the sand my goodness are you gonna are you gonna attempt to witness to somebody this christmas in such sly and cunning ways we gotta talk about it we'll be right back like what you've heard, listen again online at
0: drewmarshall.ca.